Before we get into Acts chapter 25, uh, in light of Father's Day, uh, what I'd like you to do is turn back to the Old Testament and start with Proverbs 2, which is a father's instruction to his son. And we'll cover that first before we actually get into the meat of uh, Acts 25, where we left off. Proverbs chapter 2. It says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then... This is a conditional statement. In in the English grammatical text, an if-then statement is a conditional statement. If these conditions are met then the following will happen. There's a lot of good things in here. Will you incline your ear to wisdom? Will you apply your heart to understanding? Will you cry out for discernment? And verse 4, will you seek these things as silver and as for hidden treasures? Today we think of a lot of things that are important in our lives, maybe the college fund for our children or a 401k or, you know, what we may have in the bank. But right here, God's word takes us back to the bare essentials, to the simple things of the word. And when we get these things, these are where our heart should be. The Bible says, Jesus says that, you know, that your heart should be for the things of God, where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. The things of the heart, the things of God are eternal. He says in verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Now that sounds Why do I understand something that I'm going to be afraid of? See, that's the whole key. When you understand the fear of the Lord and you understand the reverence for God, you find out it's a good thing. I fear the Lord. I don't wake up in the morning thinking God's going to put his thumb on me and squash me like a bug. The fear of the Lord is a healthy awe and reverence for our Father in heaven. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Verse 7. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. So this is what's available for the upright. And we can be upright. We should strive to be upright. The more we go through the book of Acts, Paul speaks about his character. He speaks about his uprightness as best as he could be. And it doesn't mean that he's not a sinner. God stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. Starting with verse 10. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul. So your heart, you want your heart to be inclined to that wisdom, to receive that wisdom. And knowledge is pleasant to our soul. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. From what? The next few verses, verse 12. To deliver you from the way of evil. Jesus said that the path that leads to destruction is a wide path. And many in the world find that wide path that leads to destruction. But the narrow path, the way to everlasting righteousness is a narrow path, Jesus said, and few find it. Verse 12, and this is what we need to deliver us from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in these paths. And all these things go together. And it doesn't take much to get off this path 
and go into the way of evil. And before you know it, you're enwrapped or you're embroiled in something that you say, how did I get here? But it all starts with something simple. And basically, bad company corrupts good morals. And he's trying to inoculate his son from this path. Verse 16. It's amazing because the father is speaking to his son and he's really covering a wide, variety, a wide variety of subjects. And his parents, that is what we want to do with our children. We want to inoculate them from evil. We want to inoculate them from the ways of this world. And there's a lot of different subjects that we have to cover with our children. Verse 16. To deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. One of the easiest things to get ensnared in, especially in our society, is sexual immorality. And this has to be covered. Verse 20. So you may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. And it's something that it's, it's a positive action. It's something that is, as a parent to your child, you want to help to keep your children on the right path. And you want to do the best you can to keep them on that solid path. Verse 21, for the upright will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain it. But the wicked will be cut off from the earth and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. If you ever see any type of vegetation, okay, uh, there's a, usually a tap root. There's a main root that goes down and then other roots kind of come off of it. If you see any type of vegetation and it's out, even in this, these hot days, the 90 degree days, 100 degree days, you know, as long as that root is in the ground, that vegetation is okay. But all you have to do is take it and dig it up from the root and leave it out on your driveway. And within a matter of minutes, the thing will shrivel up and die. And that's what the Lord says. The unfaithful will be uprooted from it. Very serious, uh, you know, warnings here. And understand that all this is a choice. And what that leads me to is what can we learn from a good father or a good father figure? You know, some of us may have grown up with a biological father. Some of us may have a father figure that has been maybe a stronger influence than our own fathers. What can we learn? Well, the good father figure teaches his daughter to respect herself and hopefully to inoculate herself against abuse of men. A good father teaches his son to respect women and not use them for his own gain. A good father figure from both secular and biblical sources provides his sons and daughters, number one, security. I see as a, you know, I could think about my life as a little boy. Uh, you know, my dad wasn't around really. And I had a lot of fears, and it took many years for those fears to go away. And I see my son, because my parents, my parents were divorced early, and my, you know, my dad moved away and all. And I can see my son at my age. He started out with a lot of those same fears, but I really believe, because the mom and dad were in the house, and he had me to put a lot of time into him, he really doesn't have those same problems that I had when, he, when I was his age. A good father, a father figure, figure provides confidence. Not a haughtiness, but a confidence. And also, I was reading some articles, three, the desire to strive for success. We know that there's dysfunctional relationships, and many people have grown up with those dysfunctional father-child relationships. And we can think about maybe physical or emotional abuse, but there's also other problems. A weak father figure or an unconcerned father figure. And these things cause much of society's ills. 
there was a study that was done, and it was an actual thing, and I, I, I shouldn't say it, but I think it was Hallmark. It was a card company that went into, and I've heard this many times, that went into the prisons, to the male prisons, and for Mother's Day, they said, we'll pay for the cards, and they did this kind of a nice thing, and the men would, you know, they took the cards and they'd write nice things to their moms. And then they said, wow, that was a great idea. Let's try that for Father's Day when that came around. And they found that the, the uh, percentage dropped by like 90% of the men in prison who actually even knew their dads or was, were even concerned about getting in touch with them. It kind of shows you what the lack of a father figure does to our society. So I would say this. From the bottom of my heart, I salute all you dads who are there for your kids and pouring into them. We talked on Mother's Day about moms discipling their children, and that's true. And a father brings something else to the table. But also, if you're there for your kids and you put that quality time in with your children, you're discipling those kids, and I salute you for that. So I would say at this time, anybody who's a father, a stepfather, a foster father, or any role as any type of spiritual father, I'd ask you right now to stand up, and I'd like to pray for you. Dear Lord, it is a blessing to see these men, Lord, stand up and we're so thankful for them and we're thankful for the effect that they've had on people. Lord, and there's even some times where uh, we as, as men can have an effect on maybe somebody who's younger than us and just a few kind words or a few instructions and, and not even realize the effect that we have on those people, Lord. So I thank you for the the uh, dedication, Lord, and the love and the time that these men have put in, uh, whether through biological children or just even somebody they met and uh, gave some good advice to, Lord. Again, I thank you for these men, Lord, and I just pray that you bless them and keep them all the days of their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Okay. Now we're going to go forward to the chapter uh, Acts 25, book of Acts. The last time we covered the Apostle Paul's defense before the governor Felix, and today we're going to see Paul is pretty much, I guess you could say, a leftover from Felix's administration. He suspended judgment, he, was, uh, he procrastinated, he didn't want to deal with Paul, and he just kind of left Paul in prison, and then he left and Festus took over. His name was Portius Festus, and he ruled from A.D. 58 to A.D. 62. Verse 1. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So we see Festus. He's the new governor. He takes over from Felix. And what's the new governor? What's one of his first orders of business? Well, I'll do the political thing. I'm going to meet with the Jewish leadership. Now, to really get a handle and a good idea of what's going on in the book of, of Acts, it's really good to read some history because it was a very tedious situation in that time between the Jews, the Jewish leadership, and the Romans. And there was always concern and speculation and paranoia. Uh, the Jews wanted their leaders to look out for them 
and sometimes their leaders looked out for Rome because they were getting some favors. So there was constant uprisings, uh, and to, to make matters worse, people would rise up saying, I'm the Messiah. Again, if you look up uh, secular history, a lot, a lot of people rose up, and uh, they, most of them were squashed by the Romans. So that's what you have in the background here. So Festus kind of does a smart thing for his leadership. He's going to do the political thing, meet with the Jewish leadership, and try to make sure uh, he gets off his administration to a good start. And one of the first orders of business for the leadership was to take Paul out again. <laughs> and this keeps coming up. You kind of get blown away by how relentless they were. In a temporal or a worldly sense, Paul was no threat to them. But as we saw in Proverbs chapter 1 and even Proverbs chapter 2, the wicked love to destroy the righteous. They keep coming after them. Now, understand this. It is um, maybe trite or uh, a cliche to say, but there is a constant battle with good and evil. And until the Lord comes back and he makes everything right, we're still going to be living in this world with this battle between good and evil. Verse 4. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. So what Festus has to do here is because Paul is left over from Felix's administration, he's got to reopen the case. He can't send Paul uh, anywhere until at least there's some charges specified. And Paul was kind of languishing there with no charges against him. Verse 7. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I do not object to dying. But if, but if there is nothing to these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now, Paul may have been getting a little short at this uh, point, no pun intended. And if I could paraphrase Paul, he's basically saying, listen, I didn't do anything wrong. You're taking me off my goal of serving the Lord. You see, the assurance that Paul has in his own character, verse 7, there's nothing that you can prove against me, but also the frustration in his tone. Remember, understand, if you've been with us for some time, this is the fourth time that Paul has to explain himself. The first time was at the temple. He had the opportunity to speak with, to the Jews. And he was speaking about his commission and what God had shown him. And then at some point, they didn't like the message and they said, away with this man, he's not worthy to live. So they took him away. The second time, Paul has to explain himself and he's going before the Sanhedrin. And Paul starts off by saying to the men, men and brethren, up until this point, I have lived in all conscience before my God. And bam, they punched him in the mouth. What a way to start off a testimony. So he gets assaulted, and he tries to explain again, and they remove him again. The guards take him away. 
The third time that Paul has to explain himself is in front of Felix. And this is the fourth time that Paul has to explain himself. Now he's in front of Festus. And it just doesn't end there. After this, he's got to end up going to Agrippa. And verse 11, if I could paraphrase what he's saying here, for if I am an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men can accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Sort of a paraphrase. I like to paraphrase, and it's just my, I guess, take on things. In other words, put up or shut up. If I've done something worth dying, then you know what? Just take my life already. But if I haven't, I'm appealing to Caesar because that's my right as a Roman citizen. It's kind of a frustration. I'm just trying to serve the Lord. I'm just trying to be focused and going this direction. And they keep doing things to tie Paul's hands. And this is a test, really. And we can look at that test, too. Two words. Trust. Do we trust God? And two, perseverance. Are we willing to persevere? Oftentimes, when you get pressure, it's tempting to give up. Throw in the towel, so to speak. Ready to pack it in. And I may ask some of you today, are you there? Is this something where you're just trying to serve the Lord? You're trying to see, what does the Lord have for me? And you're just getting frustrated. And you may be showing signs of wear and tear. And I've had a lot of people come to me and talk to me about that. And I have to tell you, I am the last person that's going to tell you that serving the Lord is an easy job. I'd be lying to you. But what makes me laugh is I was at, um, a few weeks back, the East Coast Pastors Conference. And there was a few uh, speakers. One was Mike McIntosh. The other one was Steve Mays. These guys are well-established pastors out in the West Coast. And they would come in. They would tell their stories. You know, it's, it's on CD. It's okay for me to repeat it. They would come into Chuck Smith's office. And Chuck Smith was pretty much the foundry of, of Calvary Chapel. And one would say, you know, I'm having this problem. You know, uh, my ministry's in trouble. I'm losing my house. And another guy would say, uh, my family has turned against me. And they're, and they're doing things to hurt me and hurt my reputation. And Chuck Smith would lean back and laugh and go, aha, it's just a bump in the road. And and they were like, what kind of guy is this? But you see, Chuck Smith has been through a lot in his life, too. And at his age, he's been able to really learn what it means to be in the fire, to trust the Lord, and to persevere. Now, the only words of comfort, or I can offer you a lot of words of comfort, are the words of Jesus. Jesus said this, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, take courage, take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, let's take that apart and really understand what that means. Because sometimes we can throw scriptures at each other and they're little trite sayings and then we move on. But understand this. Jesus said, in this world, this world that we can't get off of because of gravity and we haven't found a suitable planet anywhere else, in this world where you live, in your lifetime, in the temporal sense, you will have tribulation. That's one of those Bible promises that you're really not thrilled about. Okay? You will have tribulation. But Jesus said, be happy, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Scratch your head on that one. But understand this. If you really take that apart, it's a trump deal. It's like if you're, I don't know, playing cards or something and you have an ace. You got the trump card, right? There is trouble in this world. But Jesus, and this is a weird thing. It's a done deal. And you could say, well, what do you mean it's a done deal? My life is falling apart. There's no money in the bank, you know, in the bank account. You know, my family is having trouble. You know, my son got into a car accident, whatever it is. What do you mean? You see, Jesus, the Lord, God, sees the end from the beginning. Be of good cheer. 
I have already overcome the world. It's kind of almost in his eyes. It's already in the past. We just have to realize it. So really take that phrase and meditate it on it today. You're going to have trouble here, but be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. And another aspect of this with Paul, and uh, I try not to plagiarize. If I read something that I find really good that somebody else wrote, I don't want to steal it. I'd rather just read it because, you know, it's really good and I don't want to take credit for it. But in the Life Application Bible, in this section, is a really good commentary on uh, what happened with Paul. And it's titled False Accusations. He says this, Again, Paul had to sit and listen to his angry opponents hurl false accusations against him. This had been going on for years. There was nothing new in their argument. It was the same old litany of unsubstantiated charges. But even untrue words have power, power to damage reputations, wound the spirit, and keep feelings of ill will stirred up. Be careful not to imitate the behavior of those religious men. They were guilty of breaking the ninth commandment. And I'm sure if we're honest with ourselves, and I use the word we, we've all been in that situation. We've all said something we shouldn't say. And you know what? Once it's out there, we can't take it back. And what's really sad is there's a world that's literally going to hell in a handbasket. And sometimes we as Christians can get so caught up in little silly things and we're not seeing the big picture. After being a police officer for 18 years and seeing uh, car accidents and people who were just minding their own business one day driving to the store and they get T-boned and they lose their life or they get dismembered or they lose a loved one or I see young people with needles stuck in their arms at 30 years old and they're dead. I mean, I've seen it all. I guess it kind of bugs me when I see us in Christianity whine about our little silly issues. There's a world out there, folks. We, me is part of we. We need to be out there and we need to be asking God, how can we be a light to this world? How can we stop with our little problems and move out into the world and see how we can shine the light of Jesus' gospel onto that world? Because it's all about the word of God. And it's all about the word of God changing us so that we can have an effect on the world. Everything else is just fluff. Historical backgrounds. Just to give you some, and some of you are into this, a Roman citizen had the right, okay, in Paul's case, to appeal to Caesar, much like in the United States, if you have a court case that doesn't go well, it gets appealed. And it can go all the way up to the Supreme Court in our country if they choose to hear that. So you got Paul pretty much saying, listen, I'm playing the trump card here. I want to appeal to Caesar. I have the right to go all the way to Rome and speak to Caesar. Nero was the emperor at the time, and we've heard a lot of bad things at him about him. But if you study history, in the beginning of his reign, Nero was actually a pretty level-headed guy. And he, uh, history reflects that he was a good ruler in the beginning. And the council Festus was referring to was a legal advisory panel, much like a governor or a president appoints cabinet members. You put people in your cabinet to advise you as, an, as someone in the executive branch. And that's what um, Festus was being advised about. He said he needs to go to Caesar, let him go to Caesar. A few things that can come out of this. The question is, good question, Paul's appeal to Caesar, was he not trusting God? Didn't the Lord just tell him, you're going to go to Rome, you're going to witness to me? Did Paul have to say, I appeal to Caesar? These are all good questions. And as Christians, if we use the system, does that mean that we're not trusting God? You know, 
It would be a shame if we didn't take the words of the Bible and apply it to our lives and see how, how can I apply the scripture to my life? What about me? What if I was in Paul's position? A few things. I've been asked um, Christians and courts. Should Christians be in the court system? Well, number one, as long as it's not unbiblical. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about believers taking each other to the courts. And Paul says, what a, what a shame that is. You're going before these heathen judges and you can't settle these matters in the church. So is it unbiblical? And two, are you doing something illegal? Are you using the courts to your advantage? And three, is it dishonest? I mean, you can use the court systems if you need to. Certainly, if you make your living uh, going to supermarkets and looking for wet aisles and falling, and you're a slip and fall person, and you're getting a lot of money through the court systems, well, that's a little, there's hyperbole there, but there's dishonesty there. Or the question is, if I give to charity, is it wrong for me to write it off on my taxes? I would say no. Because the federal government allows you that write-off because the federal government encourages charitable giving because usually people of faith can do a more streamlined job, a better job than the bureaucracy and the red tape of the government. So these are all good questions, and they all have good answers to them. The second question, now let's talk specifically about Paul. Let's get off of what, what we would think of in our life and go to the Apostle Paul. Did he not have enough faith that God would get him to Rome that he had to appeal? few Proverbs, uh, two verses. I'll just read them briefly. You don't have to turn there. Proverbs 21, uh, 31. It says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. And what we see through these Proverbs, as we go through the different Proverbs, is a relationship between us and God. The horse is prepared for battle. Even if it's the Lord's battle, you still prepare your horse, you still get your armor, you still make your plans. But you know, ultimately, that, that battle is in the hands of the Lord. Proverbs 22, 3. It says, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. There's actually a punished for this. And there's other translations that, that give a little bit more meaning to it. In other words, the, the wise man sees danger and he does something about it. He battens down the hatches. The foolish man sees danger and he just whistle, whistles a tune and does nothing and he gets punished for it. There's a consequence for his inaction. So what we learn here is there's a relationship. God has sovereignty. I know that every day of my life really is run by the Lord. No matter what I do and what I try to do, the Lord has it covered. But I also have free will. I wouldn't get up here one Sunday and not study at all and just open up the Bible and point my finger and say, I'm just going to take this apart because I'd be a lazy pastor. I put hours into my material and I study. That's my free will. That's my choice. But sovereignty, God also, I pray, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Maybe help me come up with something that I didn't study. Help this to be effective and reach somebody in that audience who needs to hear the word of God. So you see our relationship with God. We work together. And the last question is, would the Lord's will still be done in the end? Of course it would. If Paul exhausted all his, his appeals and the governor said, nah, we're just going to kill you here in Caesarea. But the Lord told him in the last chapter or the chapter before, you're going to make it to Rome. Well, I'm sure that while Paul was out in the, in the courtyard, that God would have sent a flock of condors to kind of lift him up. If he could make a donkey talk in Numbers 22, okay, he could spring Paul from prison. So the Lord's will will always be done in your life, whatever it is. Verse 13, moving on. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there for many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, 
There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to be destroyed before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no no accusations against them of such things that I supposed but had some questions about him, about their own religion, and about one, Jesus, who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself tomorrow. He said, you shall hear him. A little history. There's another character, biblical, historical figure who enters here, and it's Agrippa. Who's Agrippa? History tells us that he's King Agrippa II. He was a Herod, the last in line of the Herodian dynasty to rule. He took over from King Chalcis' territory, but was given jurisdiction over temple affairs. Bernice, his sister was constantly with him. And historical sources tell us that they had an incestuous relationship, which is kind of icky. But the trip here between Agrippa and Bernice was to pay homage to the new governor as they had adjoining districts. Festus probably took advantage of the, the meeting. And you've got to look at the political issue here. So Agrippa and Bernice come with their pomp and circumstance, and they come to see the new governor to pay tribute to him. And uh, Festus probably thinks this is a great idea because now I can ask him about Paul because there's an issue about Jewish customs and stuff and I'm really not sure about it. And the Agrippas or the Herods were uh, very well versed in Jewish affairs. So this was like a symbiotic relationship between the two. Verse 19. I stress some words on purpose when I read because I want to come back to them. Did you notice that even Festus, okay, the unbeliever, the pagan king, He didn't deny outright Jesus' resurrection. And Agrippa, did you notice, wanted to hear more about this. He kind of piqued his interest. And it's no different today. You can level the charge against the church, especially the church of the United States, the Western church. And there's plenty of flaws in the American church. You can level the charge against Christians for being maybe hypocritical or unloving. You can do that too. But nobody offers a real factual denial of the resurrection. Sure, there's been some weak fly-by-night insinuations such as the James Ossuary. And if you actually follow the James Ossuary, there's many of archaeologists who said, I'm not touching that one because it's, it's, it's based on junk science. Or the Da Vinci Code. Well, you say it's a work of fiction, but he said, it's fiction. And then he said, well, I believe it. And they said, but it's fiction. And he got, the, the author, Dan Brown, went back and forth a few times, not even sure what he believes. But as a matter of fact, there's been solid cases proving through the scripture through prophecy, through the ancient text, and through science that God exists and that Jesus is the Messiah. And there's a few times that I've been up here and I've talked about um, different uh, great Christian authors who wrote these great apologetical works. And you say, oh yeah, that name sounds familiar, be it Lee Strobel or even Stan Telchin or some of these guys. And here's another one today. I actually did a little research on him. His name is Mark Eastman. He's a Jewish doctor, a medical doctor, who used to be an agnostic. 
And he set out pretty much like the rest of them to disprove. And he found that he became a believer himself. Uh, if you ever check out any of his books, Mark Eastman, two books that I recommend. One is The Creator Beyond Time and Space. He uses sciences to prove the existence of God. And the other book is Search for Messiah. Awesome book. Have any friends that are Jewish? This book uses the ancient manuscripts, the Talmuds, the rabbinical writings to lead the Jewish person to faith in their Messiah. Great works. Verse 21. But when Paul appeared to be reserved for the decision of Augustus. Now, you may be confused in saying Augustus Caesar. Wait, didn't we get past him? Aren't we at Nero? Yes, we are. The word Augustus is translated from the Greek word Sebastu, which is in the genitive case, which just means it shows possession. And that word means revered. And there's a translation into the Latin, which is Augustus, which means revered one, which was a transliteration into the English text. Long story short, it's tantamount. It's a title. It was tantamount for him saying, we're going to save this decision for the president. Okay, so Augustus was not a name. It was a title. Verse 23. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found out that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that you, or excuse me, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Not only unreasonable to send this guy to Nero Caesar without any charges, but certainly it would be legally improper at the very least. Uh, I could picture Nero and Paul standing before him and saying, okay, anybody know the charges against this guy? How am I going to rule? I don't know the charges. You would never do that. You have to have charges. And even in our jurisprudence today, you need to hold somebody with charges. You can't appeal it without prosecutorial charges. So this is where we're going to leave off today. And we're going to see next uh, week or the week after in chapter 26 that Paul gets a little more spring in his step. He gets a little bit more recharged. And you see that his attitude and demeanor through the words kind of change a little bit because he goes before uh, Agrippa and he gives him his testimony. And I believe in my heart that why Paul is, is now trying to pers persuade King Agrippa is because he knows he has a Jewish background and he's trying to appeal to those roots. The irony is Paul didn't do anything wrong, but he was still a prisoner. Even the Roman rulers agreed. Oh, he hasn't done anything worthy of death. But it's no different than John the Baptist. Okay, look at the life he lived. He just tried to serve the Lord, and look what happened to him. Or Daniel, or many of the other great men and women in Scripture. Here's another Bible promise. It says, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that's a promise. But for Father's Day, I guess if I could kind of tie it in both messages together... We see things in this world. We see the things that are before us. And we tend to move and, and react to what we see in this world. But understand, God has it all under control. God is sovereign. And my challenge to you is, I mentioned a few things that you may be going through today. Could be finances, could be relationship issues, could be something with your career, could be something with your kids. It could be anything. 
Whatever it is that you see in front of you that looks like this big Goliath or a big obstacle, I challenge you right now to just sit and wait, to trust, to pray, and ask your Heavenly Father to show you and to come through for you. Let's pray.